morning again. Welcome to Trinity. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. If you're here and you're newer, we're so thankful to have you part of our church family today. Uh, you had a lot of options uh, to spend your morning with, and you chose to be here, and we're glad that you are. Actually, I'm glad that you all are here in the same way. So just because you come here regularly doesn't mean I'm not glad. I'm glad also that you've come 78 Sundays in a row or whatever it might be for you. I'm, gla- I'm grateful. As you see on the screen, we're getting ready to start today a series on Job, Suffering and Sovereignty. And, and uh, we had, my family and I, we had spent a couple of weeks uh, on vacation and we came back to snow and suffering. So maybe I should retitle <laughs> Snow and Cold and Suffering. Um, But in all seriousness, we're going to be working through uh, a very weighty and challenging book in the Bible, in the Old Testament. You will find Job somewhere toward the middle of your Bible, uh, but maybe more on the left side of it. Uh, So if you want to go ahead and turn there now, that would be great. I'm going to jump right in because I'm reading two chapters this morning. We're going to read chapters one and two. Words will be on the screen. You can follow in your Bible if you want. But we we need to get the sense of what is happening in Job as we spend uh, nine weeks here. And we're going to start off by looking at these two chapters together. So let's dig in. Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? But there is none like him. On the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them, took them and struck them, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, 
and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. It fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Chapter 2. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one who of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Nahamathite, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Let's pray. God, as we consider your word this morning, we pray for your help. It's a hard passage, hard book, hard theme of suffering and sovereignty. And we pray that you'd be with us as we work through it together. God, would you do this to your glory and to our good and encouragement. In Christ's name, amen. The doctor tells you that the osteoarthritis in your back is worsening in ways that will require surgery. You knew things were getting bad uh, because of the increasing nerve pain and damage that prompted your initial visit and the nine long hard months of trying to treat it with all the non-surgical ways possible. You can't sleep, you're always in pain, and it's only going to get worse. At 51, you weren't ready for this. You just stare at your phone, unable to process what you are reading. Your older brother was in a car accident, a bad one. Two weeks later, You're sitting in a fog, unsure of what in the world is going on. 
All you know is that your brother is gone. He was only 22. You worked hard to get where you are at the company that you belong to. You treated people the right way. You helped train and mentor others, and they've moved on to awesome positions. You have an incredible team of people around you. This is your sweet spot until your company is suddenly sold to a competitor and an entire reorg happens. With all the bedside warmth of corporate language, the letter you are reading says your position is eliminated. Two kids in college, aging parents, a house in need of renovations. You feel dread, anger, resentment, confusion. What am I going to do? Life is hard. And it can be harsh. And we can experience great suffering in life. And with that experience, we can wrestle with the question of why. Why is this happening? In that question, as we wrestle with it, trying to cling to God in the midst of that, leads us into a very uncomfortable reality. And that's what we are confronted with in these opening two chapters of Job. A very uncomfortable reality. And that is this. The uncomfortable reality of suffering is that for reasons beyond our reach, God sovereignly allows it in our lives. And just letting that sit for a second. That's hard to take in. It's hard to, to, to get our heads and hearts around. Thankfully, though, God's word doesn't avoid this deep question. We see it addressed throughout Scripture, but no more famous place than this Old Testament book of Job. And as we look through this book of Job... We need to know that Job is not a book that's about a theoretical if, but a book set on helping us in the when of suffering. It's not the theoretical if of suffering. It's the reality of it. But in the midst of it, Job makes something abundantly clear as you read the 42 chapters of it. And that is God is sovereign. The word sovereign or sovereignty means supreme power and authority. And so if you haven't yet, you will. Perhaps had that question pulling and nagging on your heart. If God is sovereign, then why is there suffering? Or maybe maybe it's more personal. God, if you're sovereign, why am I suffering? Well, we're going to spend nine weeks in Job wrestling with suffering and sovereignty together. This morning, I want us to consider suffering in two ways. I want us to consider at first questions on suffering. And then I want us to, to wrestle with responses to suffering. As we embark out in a long journey on this very big and weighty topic, one that probably requires more than nine weeks, but we're going to give nine weeks to Job. We're going to try to work through these questions and responses. So let's work through some of these questions, which is really one question, but there's two that we need to tackle because of our chapters in light of the one question that we'll build up to. So we have three questions to consider. First is, who is this Job? Or another way to say that, what is the context of this situation? 
Well, first of all, we find the character of Job right out of the gate in the very first verse of the book. Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. Most likely, Job was not an Israelite. We don't know exactly when this occurred, though some of the writing style and some of the details may put it during the time of, say, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in that era of Old Testament history. But we're not 100% sure. It was just a long time ago. But we find here very specifically what we do know about Job, not only here in this verse, but also reiterated by God himself twice, is that Job was these four things. Blameless, upright, he feared God, and turned away from evil. First of all, blameless. He was blameless. That word blameless, can you read that and you think in the English, what, 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 does, that, what does that mean? Well, ultimately it means genuineness and authenticity. It means a personal integrity. It doesn't necessarily mean sinless perfection. Job lived his life with personal integrity. Secondly, we see the word upright. Upright describes more about the relationship that he would have with other people. How does he relate and treat other people? And he treats them with honesty, with differential treatment and care. He, he treats others in a manner that would be respectable. Thirdly, it says he feared God. And this is the kind of fear that's more like reverence, not so much like terror. He wasn't afraid of God. He actually saw the worthiness of God. In another Old Testament book, not far from Job, and the same sort of writing style of Job uh, in terms of that part of the Old Testament is the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That is, it shapes the way that we look at life and live it out. So, so essentially what Job is doing is living as if God is worthy and worth it. And he's, he's aligning his life to that. And he's living that out. So he's blameless, he's authentic, and has personal integrity. He's upright, he treats other people honestly. He reveres God, he, he prioritizes his life under God, and then it says he's turned away from evil. In the New Testament, we have a word for that, it's called repentance. It means to turn away from the wrong way that you were going by turning to the right way. And, and we understand repentance always linked with faith, that it's repenting and believing and so what we find here in Job is one who didn't just simply repent as a single act in his life, but saw it as a way of life. He was turning away from evil, seeking to turn away from evil in his life. Repentance wasn't a one-time deal, but it was a way of life. Then we find out, after those character descriptions, that he was actually considered really great. He was a really great guy, a really great uh, father and a, a really great businessman and a really great neighbor. He had a big family, big wealth, big life, 10 children, seven sons, three daughters, wealth beyond measure. And it looked like his kids liked each other. They celebrated one another on their day, which probably means their birthday. They got together. We don't have to read like drunkenness into their description. They probably were just getting together and, and enjoying each other. So he has this incredibly blessed life. And so there's already, right away, this lingering question. If bad things happen in this world, then they probably won't happen to somebody like Job. 
or that terribly titled book that was popular a little while ago. You know, when bad things happen to good people. It's that little lingering question. When we think like this, we kind of overestimate our level of righteousness and we underestimate God's sovereignty and his complexity. And the rest of the chapter and the next prove that out. When we think like this, well, you know, Job's basically got it all in order and everything's going really well, so bad things shouldn't happen to him. And essentially what we're doing when we think like that is we're, we're kind of giving room in our own hearts for something that's like the prosperity gospel. Like, or what I mean by that is as long as I do enough acts of good, then God will do good by me, right? That God will bless me. So Job must have had, had it all aligned, and that's why God was blessing him. If we are good, God blesses us. And then it means if God isn't blessing us and we are suffering, then we must not have enough good or enough faith. And that's a weighty burden to ever put yourself under. And that's certainly not what is being presented to us here. But that's who we are. That's, that's who we're looking at here is Job. Job trusted God, wanted to live his life honoring God, treated others well, loved his family, and was successful in many of his endeavors. That's who Job is. Leads us to the next question that we find is, and and it's an important one that we should ask because what in the world is going on here? (laughs) As we read through Job 1 and 2, is what on earth is this heavenly counsel of God and, and these beings that are hanging out with God? And why is Satan showing up? What is this? It's in, we find it in verse 6 and we find it again in chapter 2, verse 1. It's kind of a glimpse at God's court, if you will. Uh, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. We do know that in other parts of Scripture, they, Scripture describes God's heavenly dwelling as a royal court with God surrounded by heavenly beings who go and do what they are assigned. Uh, Famously, you can think of uh, Isaiah chapter 6 as one of those, um, or also you could look in the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and you find God in his heavenly court with, with heavenly beings that were doing what they were tasked to do. And sons of God is a, a common uh, description of a supernatural heavenly being in terms of the context. They're beyond our grasp to fully understand, but what we see in this passage and in chapter 2, they're not competitors to God's greatness and sovereignty. They actually do what they're told. So they're beyond us, but they're nowhere near to the scope of the greatness of God. They serve God. They don't compete with God. Well, except one, Satan. Who's there? The word there for Satan just means adversary or accuser. And we notice something about Satan in this passage. Uh, Let's look again at verses 7 through 12. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. 
And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your hand is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. From this heavenly court, we see that God actually is the one who initiates conversation with Satan. God is not reacting to Satan at all. God's sovereign. He's ultimate authority over all things. We also find in this passage that Satan can't do anything without God's permission. In the two scenes that we see here, Satan is allowed to wreck Job's world around him and then to wreck Job's health. And all of it is to get at this one main question. And that's again found in verse 9. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Satan is accusing here. He's accusing Job. He's accusing God. He's saying Job is only doing all these good things because he's figured you out. Take it away and he will curse you. Verse 11. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Curse isn't like the way that we would maybe use the word curse, right? Like some sort of foul language or I'm going to hex, throw a hex at you or something like that. That's not actually what the word curse here in the Old Testament Hebrew would mean. Rather, it means um, to say you're utterly worthless. I love this quote from Eric Ortland. Curse means to completely reject something as utterly worthless. Job is wearing a mask with God, putting up with a God he secretly despises only in order to hold on to his fairy tale life. So the accuser says. And so in this heavenly court in which God is administering his sovereignty, where these heavenly beings are doing his purposes and will throughout all of the cosmos and history, God, in mysterious reasons to us, allows Satan to do these things. And it leads us then to see if Satan's accusation will come true. And it causes us to wrestle then with this question, why does God allow this to happen? You may be sitting here and thinking, but why? But why? I mean, even though it is encouraging to know that Satan is actually not a rival to God, that he can't do anything unless God allows it, we are left with the hard question of why God allows it. Why does God allow it? Here in the story of Job, why did God allow it in your story? Whatever that might be. And the book of Job is most definitely about suffering. But not in the way we want it to be, but most definitely in the way we need it to be. We want the question why answered. Why this suffering? And why is a completely understandable question. You may have a whole host of whys that are heavy in your heart. It's at the heart of so many psalms. As you read through the psalms, they're not just always joyful, hopeful. Sometimes they go into hard, hard places. And even a few of them may not have very much hope at all. 
And I'm glad that they're there in the Bible because the Bible is addressing this very real thing, this very real question of why. Psalm 13, while it doesn't say why, it's kind of saying why in all of these questions. Psalm 13, 1 and 2 goes like this, and and maybe you've had these words that were similar to you on your heart and lips and in your crying out to God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? All those how longs could be reduced down to one single word. Why? Why? Why this? Why now? As you look through those two verses, we find one suffering. And in suffering, we feel the absence of God. Again, look at verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forgive me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In suffering, we feel the absence of God. And in suffering, we ask, where are you? And in suffering, we feel the anxiety of the soul. Look at verse 2, the beginning part. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? In suffering, we feel the anxiety of the soul and we ask, how much more can I take? And in suffering, we feel the overwhelming circumstances of life. The last part of verse 2, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We feel that. We feel those overwhelming circumstances. And we ask, why? 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 Just like with Psalm 13 and throughout the Bible, that why isn't answered. Instead, we are shown how. That is, how to respond to the when of suffering. Job does answer the how to respond to suffering question. And that's the question we really need answered. We may never have an answer to any of our whys. And that's maybe uncomfortable. We may never know the why. And God's word is leading us to see time and time again throughout its pages how to respond to things that don't make any sense. And so let's consider that together. Let's consider these initial responses to the events of suffering. And then as we go through this book, we'll be able to explore some of these further and all of their complexities and challenges and hopes in the midst of things that are so overwhelming. So three responses to suffering from our passage. The first response is worship. That is the opposite of cursing. If cursing means to to consider something to be utterly worthless, then worship would be giving of the highest amount of worth to. And so we find the first response to be that of worship. Giving rightful reverence and recognizing God's worth and worthiness. We see that in verses 20 and 22 of chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. 
And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Satan's accusation was that Job would curse God, but that didn't come to fruition. Instead, when Job lost it all, and in much and great pain, terrible loss, Job recognized God's worth. Well, Satan assumes a prosperity gospel. Job has learned that is not the way. So the first response that we see is to recognize God's worth and worthiness. In the midst of great loss and pain. I do not at any point. I'm not trying to minimize any level of suffering and pain. That you may have experienced or experienced. Or maybe will experience in your life. The overwhelming range of suffering. That you experienced in such a short amount of time. in Job's life. We probably have not experienced something like that. The scope, the immediacy, the significance, all of that. That is not to minimize our own levels of suffering, but to see here one who experienced a devastation that I can't even imagine, and yet turns back and says, God, still worthy. We see that further in his second response. One I'm just call it perspective. Can't look at life any other way than through the lens of trusting God. So Satan gets to go and wreck more of Job. In verses 9 and 10 we see this response. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. No, he's not calling her that. He says, you're sounding like this. So again, still treating people upright in the midst of great loss and pain. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job recognized that God's purposes prevail and his means to bring about those purposes are to be trusted even when it hurts and we don't understand. And that's our truth. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are God speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high... For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When life is hard and it hurts and the hurt doesn't seem to go away, we need to remind ourselves of what we do know of God. Even in the midst of the fog of suffering, we need something to give us some sort of bearings. And that which we know clearly about God is to help give us bearings in the cloudy and foggy and stormy circumstances of life. And what do we know about God in clear ways? Well, God said this of himself in Exodus 34. He said this to Moses. He said, 
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the character of who God is. And we know from Psalm 34, 18, the heart of God, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit. And when those experiences in this hard life, this harsh life, seem to run counter to what we know clearly about who God is and what he is like and his heart toward us, we need to cling ever so tightly to that which we know clearly in the midst of the things that want to make our view foggy, cloudy, and stormy. We need to rehearse these truths again and again that they become the impulse of our response in the circumstances of life. Some of those circumstances may be great suffering. Now, real quickly, I don't want to come away, I don't want you to come away feeling like I got to be like Job. Like Job's the goal here. I do want to point out the things of Job. But as we go through this book, we need to know that he is not perfect and he does struggle. As the 42 chapters unfold, the ongoing effects of suffering tighten around Job's heart. Hear that. Suffering is hard. It's hard for the best of us. It's hard for all of us. It's hard. And it will tighten around our hearts. When we look at Job here in chapters 1 and 2, we see one who is clinging to God. He's clinging with worship. He's clinging with perspective. He's clinging on. He lost everything. And yet he's still clinging. And you feel encouraged and emboldened by that. But as we continue on and we get to next week... He's not clinging, he's lamenting, he's crying out. He doesn't know if he can go on. And then as it continues to unfold in some unfortunate conversations with his friends, he starts to question God. And so we see this this downward slope that's happening in Job. That's the effects of suffering in our life. And so if you're finding yourself in that experience you're not crazy. You're, you're right there with Job. And so there's a place that we all can play in the midst of a hard life that can have some harsh consequences. And that leads us to consider the, the third response. And that is one of comfort. What can we do in these moments? Let's return to Job chapter 2, 11 through 13. I want to note positively what we find here. When Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Nahamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to them, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Just note what happened here. They heard, and then they came to. They showed sympathy and comfort. They wept with him. They sat with him, and they said nothing. And that right there is the roadmap for being a good friend. When we are all in the midst of something that we are suffering, 
We can be that with each other. We will see that it, they, they don't, they, when they do start talking, it doesn't help. But right now, they're modeling well for us. You hear of suffering. You go to care for each other. You show sympathy and comfort. You weep for and with. You sit with and say nothing. If there would be one thing that I could just encourage every one of us here to, to take away in terms of how we can be comforting to one another in the experiences of suffering, I would say this. Avoid at all costs anything that might be a platitude. Don't say them. Platitude is, uh, is one of those trite, pithy, meaningless sayings. Avoid them at all costs. In a moment, in an experience of suffering, you don't need to be told, God's got this. There's something good that's coming. The Holy Spirit may lead you to that, and that's fine. But we don't need to tell each other that. In fact, just sit with and be quiet. When we do speak, we'll wrestle with the right things to say as we go through Job. But here... When they hear and they go to their friend and they want to show sympathy and comfort, they sat with him and they cried with him. And guess what? Do the same. Do the same. Sitting with each other in our suffering is an extension of God's grace. Romans twelve fifteen. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There's a place for that. So here we see in these responses, in the midst of suffering, that we can respond to suffering with worship, and we can respond to suffering with perspective that's centered on God, shaped by that. And we can respond to suffering with comfort, comforting one another. There's a fourth response that the book of Job is going to ultimately lead us to see. And that fourth response is to be looking to Christ where an even greater riches-to-rags story unfold, an even more extreme amount of suffering and loss is found in Christ. The uncomfortable reality of suffering is that suffering is a when, not an if, and that God is still God even when we're suffering. That's an uncomfortable thing to wrestle with. It counters against the things that we think in our hearts But at the same time, it causes us to feel a sense of dread or question if this following Jesus is worth it because we don't want these kinds of hardships in our lives or we feel like they shouldn't be there. And in many ways, they're not supposed to be there. In some great and glorious day, they will not be there anymore, not even a hint or a shadow of them. A memory of them will be no more. In the midst of that, in the midst of our suffering and our questions and our struggles around the why, Let us not forget to look to the cross. We see the length that God goes to, to draw near. To draw near to the brokenhearted. Crushed to save the crushed. Jesus enters into our world, 
our humanity, takes on our suffering. He didn't suffer for his own stupid mistakes. He suffered for all of ours. He didn't have a mistake, stupid or otherwise. And he entered it all in and he took it all upon him. Every ounce of every one of our sins, of all of his people, from all of history. And he went to the cross with it. He didn't sidestep it, but he goes through it. He knows your suffering far better than you do. And he suffered far worse so that your suffering would have a time stamp on it. He did it, and in so doing, provided our rescue. And from it, the anticipation of restoration. I love what commentator Christopher Ash said here. I just put the whole quote. Job in his extremity is actually but a shadow of a reality more extreme still, of a man who was not just blameless but sinless, who was not just the greatest man in the region but the greatest human being in history, greater even than merely human, who emptied himself of all his glory, became incarnate and went all the way down to a degrading, naked, shameful death on the cross, whose journey took him from eternal fellowship with the Father to utter aloneness on the cross, the story of Job is a shadow of the greater story of Jesus Christ. And so when we think about the uncomfortable reality of suffering, we may not ever find the answer to the question of why. Most likely we won't. But we do find the ultimate response to how do we respond to suffering in our lives and in this world. We ultimately do that by looking to the cross, looking to our Savior, looking to the one who suffered so that our suffering would come to an end. There will be a day when the memory of suffering will be no more. That day was secured when Jesus entered into our suffering and rose victorious. And that day when suffering will be no more will come when Jesus returns to make all things new. So until that day, let us comfort each other. Let us remind each other that God is worthy and worth it, even and especially when it is hard and harsh in this life. Let us not lose sight that the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. As we continue to consider these words of Job, and as we work through them together, I know that there will be many provoking questions of why that will wrestle and linger and lurk around in our hearts and our minds. And as we do that, God, I do pray that you would bring comfort. I especially pray that you would bring comfort to anyone who is currently suffering the effects of some sort of devastation that has hit their life at some point. God, would you help us to be comfort givers to one another? Help us to hear, to go, to show sympathy, comfort, to weep with, to sit with, and to say nothing, to be present. Help us to see the value of that and, uh, and just continue to 
important to teach us how to care for each other well. And then ultimately, God, I pray that you would help us to draw our hearts to Christ. And we would look nowhere else than to Jesus, who has what we so desperately need. I pray that for those who have been following the Lord for 60 years and those who have yet to follow the Lord now, I pray that you would draw our hearts to Jesus. We pray it in Christ's name.